What's up, Stitches? Welcome to season three of So What? I'm your host and local historic needlework scholar and fan, Isabella Rosner, and I'm really excited to welcome you to the new season of the pod. Can you believe we're already on season three? Time flies so quickly, I physically do not understand it. If you've listened to this season's trailer episode, you'll know that this season will have 10 interviews released every other week with six mini episodes featuring just me in between. This season's interviews will be with historians, museum professionals, stitchers, and everything in between. It's hugely exciting and you can't see this right now because podcasting is not a visual platform, but my hands are doing a bunch of crazy stuff because I'm really, really super hyped. So yes, this is interview one out of 10, and it's honestly an absolute treat. It's with fashion historian and writer and owner of My Dream Hairdo, Amber Butchart. Talking to Amber is like beyond exciting to me because I've been a fan of her work for years and her current project, which is curating an exhibition for the 2021 British Textile Biennial, is especially perfect for Sew It listeners and anyone interested in needlework. But before I delve into Amber's credentials and then our interview, might I remind you about the Sew What social media pages and Patreon? It's been a few months, so I gotta remind you, it's my job. Anyway, So What has a Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook page, which is not only really exciting, but also super important because that's where I post images and links related to each episode. So go to at So What Podcast, that's S-E-W-W-H-A-T Podcast, on your favorite social media platform to see images of what Amber and I discuss, as well as links to her work and the British Textile Biennial website. This here podcast also has a website, sowhatpodcast.com, where you can listen to episodes and see images, links, and sources for every past episode. We also have a delightful Patreon, so please do support that if you can and or want to. I post exclusive blog posts, videos, and sneak previews over there, and your support is really important because this is entirely self-funded, this podcast, and thanks to you, I can afford my podcast equipment and podcasting platform fees and can compensate the lovely interviewees for their time and effort. The podcast's Patreon is at patreon.com slash sowhatpodcast. Thank you for your support. I love you very much. If you can't support, I still love you very much. And now that we've gotten those housekeeping bits and bobs out of the way, let's talk about this week's fabulous interview guest, shall we? We are really starting off this season with a bang here, and I actually wrote that without realizing there's a bit of a joke in there, because our guest has really iconic bangs, or as the Brits say, a fringe. Anyway, today's interview is with Amber Butchart, a dress historian who you've probably seen on your TV or heard in your earphones or read words from with your eyes. The end of that sentence really went off the rails, but what I mean to say is that she's written lots of fabulous books, and she's been in a delightful variety of TV programs and is herself a queen of podcasting. Amber is a writer and broadcaster who specializes in the cultural and political history of textiles and dress. She has written five books, Nautical Chic, The Fashion of Film, Fashion Illustration in Britain, The Fashion Chronicles, and Amber Jane Butchart's Fashion Miscellany, as well as articles in publications including The Guardian, Times Literary Supplement, and Financial Times. 
She also researches and presents documentaries for TV and radio, including A Stitch in Time, which is a six-part series that aired on BBC4 in 2018. The series fused biography, art, and the history of fashion to explore the lives of historical figures through the clothes they wore, and it was, in my humble opinion, absolutely lit. You also may have seen her in The Great British Sewing Bee, where she appears to discuss all things historic fashion. Amber is a former research fellow at the University of the Arts London and teaches cultural and historical studies at undergraduate and postgraduate level at London College of Fashion. She is a regular public lecturer, speaking at institutions from the Tate to the V&A and from Dubai to Melbourne, Dallas, Florence, and Hangzhou. And Amber is the lead consultant in forensic garment analysis with Electo Forensics, where she works on cases that require examination and investigation of clothing and textiles, which is honestly so cool to me. I am one of those people who really, really loves true crime. So what I'm saying is Amber is out here living my true crime dream. Amber also has quite a few podcasts that you should listen to. I don't know how she has time to do it all, but here she is. She's making it work and she's making it fabulous. The podcasts are Making a Splash, which celebrates swimming and the sea, Fashioned, which is co-hosted with Clara Omfo and is all about fashion, and Cloth Cultures, which accompanies the 2021 British Textile Biennial. And on top of all of that, Amber is currently curating exhibitions for the Fashion and Textile Museum in London and the British Textile Biennial, which I keep mentioning, in Lancashire. The Biennial runs through this month, which, for those of you who are listening to this later, is October 2021. So that is the focus of our conversation today. And now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Textile and needlework delights await. Here it is. Amber, hello. Thank you so much for being here today. I am incredibly excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. How did you come to study and write and speak about the cultural and political histories of textiles and dress? And within that, what role does historic needlework play in your work? So I began my career working with old old textiles and clothing, essentially, as a vintage clothing buyer. Uh, So that's where my career really began and my interest really began. Well, it's not technically where my interest began. I'd always had an interest. Like I grew up shopping in charity shops and jumble sales and markets and things like that. And so secondhand clothing is always has always been the way that I have most enjoyed shopping for clothing, basically. Always loved the, you know, the treasure hunt, all of those cliches that go along with secondhand clothing and really secondhand anything is what I've always loved. In terms of my career, though, it was really through working at a vintage, uh, well, it's now an international vintage uh, company called Beyond Retro. I started doing that as soon as I left university. I did a degree in literature. Um, It was always a toss up as to whether I was going to do history or literature. And I ended up doing literature, but was always very interested in the historical context of the texts we were studying, you know, studied a lot of sort of like Jacobean literature, the romantics, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Once I finished my literature degree, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd always been very happy and at home in, in an academic context, loved school, loved reading, researching, things like that. 
Um, the other thing I'd always loved, which I sort of realized when I finished my degree was old clothes. Mm-hmm. So I got a job at uh, what was my favorite shop at the time, Beyond Retro, just working on the shop floor. This was coming up for 20 years ago remarkably which makes me feel insanely old that yeah nearly 20 years ago it was 2002 I think that I started working there after I graduated and I was just working on the shop floor so the company was absolutely tiny at the time it was just a handful of us it was in the space just off Brick Lane so I was working there and I would spend my lunch breaks uh, sort of reading the books that they had about vintage clothing I was very interested in the social history of the pieces we were selling And so after I'd been there a couple of years and essentially became the the buyer for the company because of all of this research I was doing, I began training the people that were selecting the clothing for us around the world. Um, And it was through that that I decided to go back to university and do a master's degree in history and culture of fashion. I also started doing bits and pieces of my own writing as well. And so it just really sort of grew out of all of that. And in terms of the role of historic needlework, It really depends what project I'm working on. I still have that association with London College of Fashion, which is where I did my master's. Um, I'm an associate lecturer there and I'm a short course teacher there as well. Um, Outside of that, I work on a number of different projects, uh, freelance projects. They all have research at their core. Uh, But then the platforms might be different, as you mentioned, maybe TV, maybe radio, maybe books, maybe writing for various people or things like the project I'm working on now for the British Textile Biennial, which I think we'll talk about shortly. So, yeah, in terms of uh, historic needlework, it really depends on what project I'm working on as to if that comes into the research or not. At the moment, it does with the Textile Biennial. Um, and in some, I guess, tangentially, it does in various other areas as well. Like I, a few years ago, I wrote a book about nautical, the nautical origins of our clothing. Some of the uniforms I was looking at, you know, needlework is a part of that. Or you might be looking at people sort of customising parts of their uniform using needlework, or you're maybe considering sailors fixing their own clothing on board ships, things like that. So it's, um, it often is involved in the projects that I work on. I really love that. And I like that historic needlework kind of comes and goes as like a special guest, historic needlework, you know, like it always (laughs) comes in when you least expect it. So you just mentioned this. So I'm really excited to talk about it because I know you are currently curating an exhibition for the British Textile Biennial, which is called Cloth Cultures, Stories of Movement, Migration, and Making. Can you tell me more about that? And what is it like to work with pieces from the Gothorp Textile Collection? Yes, so I am guest curator for this year's British Textile Biennial, which is really very, very, very exciting. Um, I was involved a little bit two years ago at the first Textile Biennial they ran, Um, involved in some events this time I'm involved on a much bigger scale which is really exciting because as soon as I went up there in 2019 to see what they're doing in Lancashire I was just so excited by the programs of events and the commissions that they do it's really about it's right in the heart of Pennine Lancashire in the heart of Britain's textile heritage and it's really about 
how that has impacted not only British history, but also global history. And that's particularly the theme of this year's biennial. It's all about uh, the global stories of cloth. And so what I'm doing with my Cloth Cultures exhibition is really trying to marry the local and the global, looking at local stories, local pieces that you can find in the Gawthorpe textile collection, but that you can really use to tell these much, much bigger global international stories as well. And so I decided to tell these stories through different fabrics. So I'm focusing on wool, linen, cotton and silk, Um, looking a little bit at how each of those have been created within Lancashire itself. Obviously, we know it for cotton. (laughs) That's the big story, right? (laughs) But each of those four fabrics have actually been created at some uh, in some part of of Lancashire at some point in history. Obviously, cotton being the huge story with the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, we're really we're still living in a world that that part of the country created through that industrialization and through the global links that that industrialization really fermented um whether it was via trade or whether it was via the actual manufacture of cotton the enslavement of people from africa forced migration all of those stories are really bound up in these textiles that we find So I'm working with very closely with Rachel Midgley, who's the curator at the Gawthorpe Textiles Collection, who is fantastic and just knows the collection inside out. It's a brilliant collection to be working with because I think a lot of people further south in the country maybe aren't that familiar with the Gawthorpe Textile Collection, but it's an enormous collection covering, spanning a really huge, um, you know, uh, chronological period and also really big geographical period as well. A lot of it was amassed by uh, Rachel K. Shuttleworth, who uh, lived um, at Gawthorpe Hall for part of her life, and it was her sort of family home. And she was very, very interested in textiles, especially in using textiles as uh, teaching tools. So a lot of the collections she was amassing, she was using to teach local women or to help people understand the different um, sort of needlework techniques that were being covered, essentially. So the history of the collection itself is really interesting. And it means we have, there's a huge collection, for example, of Chinese silks, like embroidered silks, which I'm drawing on quite a lot uh, for the exhibition. Um, There's just, I've really sort of barely scratched the surface, to be honest. There is so much in this collection to be mined and so much more work to be done on it that I would really recommend anybody interested in the study of historic textiles to just book a visit and and get involved uh, somehow. There are some absolute gems there. So I wanted to tell some stories that have local significance and sort of global resonance as well. So a few of those, for example, there is a um, late 19th century Manchu uh, embroidered silk skirt in the collection that Rachel K. Shuttleworth purchased at Liberty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've used that as one of the key pieces in the exhibition and the accompanying podcast as well that I've made. There's a Cloth Cultures podcast that is launched now where I interview lots of amazing makers, artists, academics, scientists, historians, all kinds of people to go a bit further in terms of the links that these particular fabrics can 
tell us about the global and the local throughout history. So this one skirt in particular, I think is really interesting because it really speaks to the influence of, of Chinese aesthetics on European design, the place of liberty in popularizing those kind of pieces from, um, you know, from Asia uh, in fashionable dress and especially sort of, you know, artistic or bohemian aesthetic dress in Britain. Um, there's also a huge amount of textile samples in the collection that were made in various factories around Lancashire and the Northwest for export to various markets throughout Africa. Mm. And so through, tr through tracking those, you can tell really specific stories about how, um, you know, even once the, the transatlantic slave trade had ended, you can really start to understand the importance of cloth in colonialism throughout Africa, essentially, how those um, sort of journeys, I suppose, of, uh, of trade and, you know, creating products in Europe to sell into specific markets in Africa, um, the journeys of inspiration that you see there, but also that link between those economic policies and how they so often became embedded in the political you know, power struggles that were happening at that time as well in the late 19th or early 20th century. So there's loads of really fascinating stories that you can unpick from that as well. And so in the podcast, I've spoken to people like Lubaina Hamid, who's a, a Turner Prize winning artist, and she's doing a commission for the Textile Biennial this year, looking at those particular histories as well. And that's something that she explores a lot in her work. So I was able to talk to her um, I've been talking to all kinds of people. Dr. Sarah Chang was really, really helpful. She's at the RCA and she's also at the Centre for Decoloniality and Fashion. Mm -hmm. And her, a lot of her work looks at the influence of, you know, Chinese design on European aesthetics. Um, there's another great collection in the Gawthorpe uh, collection. There's just so many stories to be told. The stories I've been telling are quite, it's been quite difficult to narrow it down, to be honest, because there are so many. There's this other great collection of samples from Sabden, which is a village about five miles away from Gawthorpe Hall, which used to be quite a big uh, print calico printing centre. And there are these fantastic late 19th century samples of these incredibly bright, you know, aniline dye uh, textiles in this really fine wool fabric uh, created by this company run by a man called Robert Hindle. And that is such a local story. You know, they, it's literally five miles from the textile collection. But from that, you can start to consider who they were made for. A lot of these very fashionable fabrics, because they're wool, but they're also very lightweight, may have been for um, uh, British people living in India. Again, these stories of colonialism. Obviously, the East India Company comes into a lot of the stories that I'm telling as well, especially things to do with you know, chintz and um, uh, uh, those kinds of uh, fabrics. And again, that really clear link between the economic and the political. So that's a very long-winded way of talking about some of the stories that I'm telling in this exhibition. When you were talking, what kept coming to mind is this idea that the Pennines and that Lancashire and that whole region is quite rich and beautiful, but really barren. But it's this 
kind of blank canvas, this blank slate onto which all of these stories can be told. What I love about visiting Lancashire, and I'd be, I've, I, so I grew up in the south of England as well. And um, this is the first time that I've spent a lot of time in Pennine, Lancashire. Mm-hmm. And what I love about visiting the region, if you're interested in textiles uh, and dress, is that that history is everywhere. It is throughout the landscape. It is in buildings. Um, it is in people's consciousness. You know, the labour history around there is all working in the mills. And there is just some brilliant work that people like the textile biennial organisers are doing now to repurpose old mill spaces and the old industrial spaces and think, what do we do with these in a sort of, you know, quote unquote, post-industrial world? Mm -hmm. What do we use these spaces for? And they're really using them as sort of tools of education, essentially, to tell these stories and to get people to really consider the place of textiles and the industrial revolution especially um, and how that interacts with the natural landscape as well because the natural landscape if you're thinking about wool production then obviously the landscape is you know it was perfect for grazing the climate was perfect for you know creating wool and things like that so it's it's relevant in so many ways and you really viscerally feel it in a way that I have not been I've not had that anywhere in the south um, mm. of Britain really in terms of textiles so it's great and the, the building where my exhibition is happening is the Haworth Art Gallery literally in the bones of the building like there's some stained glass panels and they have images of um, you know weaving shuttles and uh, calico printed calicos and all of like it's literally you can't escape it it's it's if you're interested in textiles, it is such a fantastic place to visit. And it's really important to remember that the enormity of the global stories that you get resonating from that part of the country. And, you know, we're still living with the impacts of that today, whether it be climate change or whether it be, you know, structural inequality, colonialism. We're still living with the effects of what happened in that part of the country. Yeah, I think. That's exactly right. I think it's impossible to overestimate the power of how the how global it was and the intense amount of ripple effect that's happening until now. What role has needlework played in your other work? You said earlier in this conversation that it kind of depends on the project. And I can imagine that it's been used to differing extents in things like your TV show, A Stitch in Time, or your podcast, Making a Splash, your work on forensic garment analysis, and your many books. I realize that's a super broad question, but give me a a hint, if you can, of the role of needlework in your many different projects. It varies from project to project, depending on what the, uh, you know, sort of final outcome, I guess, of the project will be. Um, For this project, the textile biennial project, obviously there's been a big amount, a big sort of focus on needlework and things like that. For A Stitch in Time, the TV show, obviously needlework was very important in terms of the, you know, amazing uh, Ninia Michaela and her team recreating the garments that we were exploring through art history. Um, For those of you who have seen the show, you'll know that I am not a great practitioner (laughs) and part of my role in the show, I was very keen when we were putting the ideas together and putting the concept of the show together, 
I was really keen that in each episode I would have a go at something that Ninja mm-hmm. was doing because I felt like I acted as like a conduit for the audience because it's very easy to watch someone like Ninja and just go oh well that looks pretty easy you oh, know it's God. like watching an expert in anything you're like oh well, that looks easy and actually these things are incredibly difficult incredibly skilled of course we all know this but I was very keen that the audience saw that so I was very keen to have a go and show myself basically being useless at those <laughs> things so that the audience could kind of relate with that and get more of an understanding of actually how skilled this work was um whether it was you know I think I spent some time hammering some leather seams uh, when we did the hedge cutter episode or I did so, spend some time trying to create the dagging for the 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 Arnolfini gown like various different things basically um maybe not much with actual needles but again it was great to show the wide variety of tools that can be used or historically were used on textiles for the forensics needlework not necessarily but understanding it's really encouraged me to get a greater understanding of textiles and fabrics themselves Mm -hmm. and the makeup of actual textiles and fabrics before I started working um you know a, a bit in forensics I was very much focused on garments um and you know the way that the teaching at London College of Fashion is done it's very cultural studies based you're considering mm-hmm. cultural context you're considering the politics of these things all of which is very very interesting it's not very object-led the teaching at London College of Fashion um, and so it was really when I started working a bit in forensics that I became much more interested in the materiality of cloth I suppose mm. and started really like making a concerted effort to train myself more something which is still ongoing and which is always ongoing I mean I don't know about you but the thing I love about what I do the most is that I'm always learning my job is literally to learn things and then sometimes to tell other people about the things I've learned which is great yes that's the dream absolutely but it's the learning that I love so uh, you know I love doing all of those and the you know the, the forensics entirely pushed me into an area I never thought I'd work in Mm -hmm. really pushed my boundaries in so many different ways um and I'm really enjoying with that work I'm really enjoying trying to marry the material with the conceptual I suppose in terms of I've just been writing over this last year I've been co-writing uh, an entry for a forensics encyclopedia trying to develop the beginnings of a methodology oh, wow. for forensic garment analysis so I've been thinking about that a lot and trying to marry the you know material uh, culture studies methodologies with forensic science approaches and really sort of trying to get my head around that so that has involved a lot of very hands-on textile um textile research and analysis dr carl harrison who i work with in um the forensic sphere he's the one that got me started that got me that contacted me and got me involved his whole thinking was that today the world of forensics is just dominated by dna Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which is, of course, incredibly important and has absolutely revolutionized forensics, right? The discovery of DNA and the growth of that from the sort of 80s onwards. But his concern, which is of interest to all of us working in material culture, is that people were no longer considering stuff 
or things mm-hmm. as evidence that those skills were being lost. And it was under that uh, sort of line of thinking that he got me involved because it is something that used to happen a lot more frequently, like clothing before DNA. Like if you look back and, you know, you can consider the work of, um, you know, people like Alison Matthews David, who's just mm-hmm. doing brilliant work in terms of, really? um, uh, you know, fashion and um clothing and crime and she's doing lots of work around that at the moment and if you look back into the past clothing was a much bigger part of the evidence you only you know you just have to consider like Sherlock Holmes stories things like that and you can see clothing coming up a lot I did a research trip with Alison before the pandemic to the um River Thames Police Museum which I also went to when I was doing my nautical research which is great and they would say that you know, it used to be used as a means of identification. If a body was found, the clothes in the river, the clothing would be hung up. And if you it were missing anybody, you would come and have a look at this area on the Thames where clothing would be hung up. And that was a means of identifying people who had drowned in the river. Oh, brutal. So it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly something that used to be used a lot more and has just sort of fallen out of uh of practice basically of the literal sort of practice of you know forensic investigation it does seem like and as a not forensics person i can't say this for certain but it does seem like it's gone from textiles in you know in terms of full pieces of clothing full outfits to much smaller scale textiles like um you know fiber analysis like oh this person has like a piece of fiber in their car yeah yeah to you know all of that being replaced by DNA. It's so exciting, but more than that, important that textiles can be used to solve these cases, to bring closure and justice to victims. So thank you so much for your work. Also, that really shows that textiles are, in addition to being really important globally, they do a lot of work for justice. They're more than how we just clothe ourselves and how we decorate our homes and how we trade with the world. They're actually they're actually bringing victims closure and answers, I would think, and bringing justice to the people who need justice brought to them. And now onto the next question. What is your favorite needleworked object or objects? I know that picking one is oftentimes really hard, so you can pick like 10 and I'll, I will listen and appreciate all of them. Okay, so for this, I'm gonna slightly cheat and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one but I'm gonna pick one that specifically relates to the work I've been doing for the British Textile Biennial because like you say it is impossible to narrow it down really so I thought I'd just use it as an excuse to talk about a piece um, in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection which I'm really in love with and this is an embroidered they think it was a herb pillow that's what they think it probably was this and it's incredibly point. fragile and incredibly delicate and we can't have the actual piece on display in the exhibition but we are going to have some beautiful blown up imagery of it now this is from the late 16th century um and what i absolutely love about it is that it is covered in images of um sort of british country flowers But also, as you see throughout so much uh, of the sort of decorative arts at that period, you've got insects, there's like butterflies, caterpillars, there's even a snail on it. Ah. 
And I just love Love that. I love it. I love it in the way that I also love those Schiaparelli collections from the 30s that use insects. I honestly, anything with insects on, I just love it. Really love it. Yes. Um, So it's almost like there's also like peas in a pod, all created through this really intricate, absolutely beautiful embroidery. And it's got spangles around the edges. It's a a fantastic piece. Um, And so it's almost like it's created. It's conjuring this like English country garden on this herb pillow and really fits in with that kind of late Elizabethan, early Jacobean uh sort of decorative arts in in general but also I think just comes at that really interesting point in time it's depicting these things which uh you know look very English it's um using silk thread on Mm -hmm. linen but it's this period you know the end of the 16th century it's really you know covers that period in sort of 1600 where Elizabeth I gives the royal charter to the East India Company so it seems like it really comes at this quite pivotal moment between, uh, in terms of the relationship that Britain or you know England as it, at the time has with the rest of the world, and it's really marks. It's obviously it's not the beginning of that kind of global exploration and those beginnings of um, imperialism and colonialism, but it's quite a pivotal moment. And so I think it's very interesting in that respect as well. Oh yeah. I mean, great object. I really, one of my top loves is like a nice Elizabethan Jacobean Rinseau themed like embroidered piece because they're incredible. I also find that really interesting when thinking about what you were saying earlier and more recently about the globalism of textiles. This idea that it's like this idealized English countryside kind of aesthetic that encases what was almost inevitably a quite international selection of scents, you know, like, yeah, so every oh, ambergris coming in from all these exotic lands and civet, you know, was not successful in London. So they had to get it elsewhere. And this, I don't know, I think there's a lot to be said about this uh, very English form, this English type of embroidery enveloping a very international raw material. There is so much material culture and not even material culture, but, you know, there is so much um, in this country that people maybe consider at face value is inherently British or inherently English. And it's all international. I mean, like with culture everywhere, but here especially, I mean, chintz is obviously the perfect example of that. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so that I think is 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 something that's really interesting with it as well. Absolutely. And it really speaks to the importance of textiles in general, that this one object, this seemingly, I don't know, mundane, not hugely important domestic item holds a whole world in it. It holds an entire universe of scents and spices and materials, right? The silk coming from likely China or even Italy and these spangles that were definitely not made in England, unless the wire people were getting creative. Like, this this really simple object that was obviously made with love and preserved with love, but something that its chances of survival were not excellent, it survived and it's here to tell us about the whole world and England's place in it. Exactly, that's a nice way of putting it, yeah. What do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Oh, that's a huge question. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> role of needlework today. I mean, 
I think it's very interesting looking at the work. So for this, I'm going to deflect my answer away, actually, to consider some of the artists that are working in the textile biennial at the moment. Do it. Um, especially people like Raisa Kabir, who is a textile but also performance artist. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work that she does really explores, you know, these ideas of, of colonialism through cloth and, and the, the journeys and the migrations of people to do with textiles. But I also, uh, a couple of years ago, she was interviewed as part of a Radio 4 documentary I was making about um, embroidery artists. She talks about it in a very interesting way, because I think if we're a lot of the time in 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 Britain or maybe in, um, you know, sort of a European and American context or North American context, we consider needlework as something that has historically been denigrated as women's work. Of mm -hmm. course, you know, very much coming out of the Rizika Parker Right. you know subversive stitch like all of the you know and and those ties to second wave feminism and really sort of reclaiming that right which is an incredibly mm -hmm. important story and a very valid narrative but what artists like Raisa Kapir do is actually resituate that within a global context and say well actually if you look at places all over the world it's not just women's work there are men doing this and it has a different cultural context and it's you know it's it's not necessarily this big feminist story in the same way so I guess I guess you have to always approach these things from an intersectional perspective right you have to always think about um sort of more global connotations to things or or what is the perspective that is maybe not the perspective that I understand because it's the one I've grown up with right uh, so I think it can tell us through artists like Risa um we can learn really important global stories about needlework today and the legacy that past needlework or past textile histories have had on different places around the world that was beautifully said and Thank so you. true yeah so the last question is how can people learn more about your work and do you have anything you'd like to promote i feel like the answer will be yes so go for it hit me with it Sure. Well, like most people these days, you can find me on social media, uh, mainly Instagram, where I'm at Amber Butchart. That's where I share bits and pieces of my work, bits and pieces of what I'm up to, all of that kind of stuff. I am also on Twitter, but I actually haven't checked it for a really long time. So probably best to find me on Instagram. My website is amberbutchart.com. And I would just really recommend looking up the British Textile Biennial. Obviously, you can find their programme of events online. You can find the Cloth Cultures podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find my Making a Splash podcast, wherever you get your podcasts as well. That's the podcast I started this summer, looking at um, people who are inspired in their work by the sea and swimming which has been another long-standing interest of mine. I grew up at the sea. I live at the sea now. I wrote a book about nautical clothes. A lot of my research kind of involves the sea. So I really wanted to talk to other people as well about how the sea or swimming inspires them and their work. So if that's something that you're interested in, then you can find that podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts as well. Amazing. Thank you. And am I correct in saying that even though the British Textile Biennial lasts only throughout the month of October. You'll still be able to find all relevant information, lots of fascinating videos, pictures, and bits on the internet for the foreseeable future. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be loads online. And actually, a lot of the events that we're running for the Textile Biennial are going to be blended events. Like a lot of them are online events or a lot of them are in person, but we'll also have an online home. My exhibition, the Cloth Cultures exhibition, is also going to have its own dedicated digital space as well at some point very, very soon, maybe during the biennial, maybe it will launch just afterwards. But yeah, I mean, as with everything these days, and the pandemic has only sped it up you know you have to have things online as well so yeah there's a number of videos and all kinds of stuff obviously the podcast will be up the whole like forever I guess I assume <laughs> um so yeah definitely check out stuff online if you can't get to Lancashire awesome speaking of globalism from the Pennines to the world anybody can access it anywhere Amber thank you so much for this it has been a real delight thank you so much thanks for having me it's been such a treat thank you What a way to start off season three, right? A treat, a joy, and an honor, to be honest. It's especially an honor to talk to Amber about her role in the British Textile Biennial and her work to show how the ripples, both good and very, very bad, of textile production in the north of England can still be felt today. Throughout our conversation, I kept wanting to make puns about the role of textiles in connecting us socially, politically, and economically, weaving and stitching us together. Those textile-based puns are pretty tired, although I use them all the time, but I do love this idea that the four fabrics Amber is focusing on, wool, linen, cotton, and silk, are all, in their most basic form, woven in the same way, but result in textiles with totally different uses, textures, and appearances. I feel like the textiles themselves mirror human connections in that way. The same weaving of warp and weft, becoming totally different beasts, echoes human interactions around textiles. The same raw materials were, and still are, used to different ends in different corners of the world, and they often lead to tangled knots of climate change and people enslaving others and terrorizing faraway lands through colonialism. I think Amber's exhibition using textiles from the Gawthorpe collection will do much to unpick and untangle and talk about the different ways in which textiles and human lives are woven together and stitched upon, both locally and globally. So there we are, my waxing poetic about the connections between the complexities of textile weave structures and human interactions. Have you missed me ending each episode with a nice little theoretical textile ramble? I have, and I hope you have too. But before I go, here's what you have to know about the British Textile Biennial, because time is of the essence. The biennial runs through the 31st of October 2021 across Pennine, Lancashire, in places like Darwin, Accrington, Blackburn, and Burnley. The show follows the journey of textiles across continents and centuries, tracing and unraveling the threads that still bind us in the service of fast fashion, expression, and identity. It combines displays by contemporary textile artists, exhibitions of historic pieces, and a whole variety of workshops and pop-ups. So please, if you can get to Lancashire, go and learn about and celebrate and question and think about the region's rich textile history. And if you can't get there, go check out all that the Biennial has to offer at britishtextilebiennial.co.uk. Now go out and stitch some stories and go to the British Textile Biennial before it's too late. And go watch A Stitch in Time if you haven't already, because honestly, it is so good. Bye!